Mark chapter 10. This past week we had an opportunity to be able to talk with an individual and they were talking about how certain things scare them but they wanted to do a variety of things that were very challenging because as they get older they want to they expand and get out of their comfort zone. They were choosing, they said the one thing that really scared them was doing a hot air balloon trip. But they said afterwards they were so scared but afterwards they absolutely... They loved it. They loved it. Then we got into conversations about things that we would like to do but we're scared to do. Any of you ever do bungee jumping off a cliff and go down, you know, and then bounce back up? Doesn't that look so cool for somebody else to do? Okay, right? Uh, zip lining. How many of you done zip lining? And to say, oh, see all you brave souls. Um, I remember when I was a teenager in Minnesota, we had but not only 10,000 acres, but we had a lot of quarries. And so there were lots of times that those quarries were there and they would fill up with water. And it was always cool to go to the quarry and jump off these huge ledges and jump out into the quarry. But I remember my first couple times going down there with a group of friends, there was no way I was jumping. No way. I don't care what they said. They could call me, you're the coward. I didn't care. I wasn't going to jump. But then the one time that I did jump, I absolutely hated it. Uh, yeah. You get those. Then there's those people say, I want to swim with sharks. Yeah, especially after Shark Week comes up, you know, they want to do that. Or even some rides. Some of you are just the daredevil type. You want to do the rides. Others of us are mature and have common sense, and we stay on the merry-go-round, and that's about it. Then there's those people. Do you remember that show that was on TV where you put your hand in the hole of the river thing, you know, the river bank, and you reach in, and you grab that catfish? Actually, the catfish grabs you. Do you remember that program? And we're watching it, and you'd say, wouldn't that be stupid? <laughs> the fact is, there's a lot of things that we do that, that sometimes we're, we're apprehensive because we're scared to do it. But once we do it, the apprehension goes, and it's kind of really fun to do. You know, in many ways, that is the same as doing the will of God. There are a lot of things in God's Word that scares us that we're afraid to do. And at first we're saying, oh, that's just going to be so difficult. It's going to be so difficult to share the gospel. It's going to be so difficult to get baptized. It's going to be so difficult to go and, and talk with somebody and tell them, I'm sorry. It's going to be so difficult to make restitution. It's going to be so difficult to work on this marriage. It's going to be so difficult to train the child because they are so sweet and so lovely. They, they're so angelic. And to discipline them is so difficult. But when you do the will of God, you find it is so, so, so beneficial, so wonderful. It's great to do the will of God. It's absolutely great to pillow your head at night and say, I wouldn't have changed anything this day because I'm doing the will of God. You and I, therefore, need to, and this is what we're talking about tonight, we need to have the courage to determine to do the will of God. And sometimes it takes that. It takes that courage to stand back and say, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to do that. Tomorrow I will give out that tract. Tomorrow I will take care of that issue at work. Tomorrow I will confront that situation. Tomorrow I will write out that check to give to missions. I will do that. And it takes courage at times. The setting that this is portrayed in is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And as he's on his way to Jerusalem in the last few months of his earthly ministry, he's teaching his disciples. He's got the 12 around him. We know that Judas is not a part of the believing crowd and he's going to go by the wayside. But Jesus is preparing his disciples for his very soon upcoming departure. And so what we have in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 as we go on, Jesus is teaching a number of truths. What is interesting is what he teaches in chapters 8, 9, and 10 as he's going through and talking to the disciples. And by the way, these are given to the disciples. That he's giving them instructions and he's giving them challenges. A number of paradigms 
paradoxes that they had never heard from somebody before, but they are very, very true. He's going to teach them such things as this. The in crowd, you disciples, you need to reach out to those who are on the outside. Those who you typically wouldn't reach out to. Especially if you take the child and put them on lap and say, you need to receive one of these as you would receive me. Jesus teaches that idea of you adults, you need to become childlike in your faith, where you and I need to trust the Lord with simplicity and explicitly saying, we're depending upon you, we're not going to worry about, what about those social security checks? What about those you know, bills that are coming due? We're going to be trusting you, doing our faithful due, and making sure we do our part, but we're going to trust you, Lord. We're going to have to be like a child, trusting you. He gives them another paradox. He tells them that in order to get... You need to sacrifice. You need to give. You need to give up family, homes, houses, lands. You need to give up some of those relationships and I'll provide for you. I will substitute or I myself will be your parent, your brother, your sibling. He talks several times. To be first, you need to become last. You need to serve others. In fact, that's where he talks about at the end of chapter 10, or not towards the end, but in where we're at, he is saying to them, after the disciples have had argument and argument and time again, the second time of arguments over who's the greatest, and jealousy is, is flooding their minds, he says, listen, if you really want to rule with me in the kingdom, you need to have a spirit of being a servant. You want to be first, you've got to put yourself last. And you have to have that humility. When he is teaching them that it is profound, the setting that he is teaching is in the mix of all of those profound truths, he keeps on saying, oh, by the way, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. I'm going to give up my life. He is setting for them the example of real servanthood. In fact, if you look at the three different times in chapters 8, 9, and 10 that he explains and says to them, I am going to give my life. I'm headed for Jerusalem. I'm, they're going to take my life. I'm going to give my life. And then he, it's interesting when you see the parallels from each one of these accounts. Each one of these accounts, before he states, I'm going to go and die and rise again the third day, each one of them has something phenomenal about Jesus that is portrayed, such as he feeds the 4,000 in chapter 8, such as he heals the man from Bethsaida. Then he says, oh, by the way, I'm headed to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. In chapter 9, you look at the setting. There's the transfiguration. Several of them see in his glory. They come down from the mountain. And Jesus performs a miracle that none of the disciples could do. He casts out the demon. Then, shortly after that, he says, by the way, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Then what, he comes into chapter 10. And in chapter 10, he gives major lessons on the family, marriage and divorce, on taking care of the children, on heaven, on riches, and on how to, uh, how to live. And it shocks the disciples that we read in chapter 10. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, you've explored that with us. That they are shocked by his teaching. It is so amazing. It is, what he does, what he says is compelling and in each one of those things, then he makes a prediction. In chapter 8, he predicts, and you can look up the text, that he predicts and he says that I'm going to go down towards the city and the chief priests, the scribes, and the rulers will kill me. He's very specific, saying that the leadership is going to turn against him. Then what he does in the second uh, time that he repeats it, he says, I'm going to suffer at the hands of men. He doesn't specify who it is. But he says, I'm going to go, and then I'm going to die. They're going to, they're going to you know, uh, reject me. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again three, in three days. Then the last time in chapter 10, he's more detail-oriented. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I will be killed by the Jewish leaders and the Gentiles. 
So now he gives them more detail. And he talks about how they're going to reject and scourge and, and uh, then they're going to mock. And then he goes on, he says, and I'm going to die. And in each case, he also talks about, I'm going to rise again. And so after he tells them that, in each one of these situations, there's a record of how the disciples respond. Each one of these accounts. It's just, it's, it's deja vu all over again in each one of the chapters. Right after that, all of a sudden, we read in chapter 8, Peter rebukes and says, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. You can't go. And Jesus has to say to him, get thee behind me, Satan. In chapter 9, after he tells them that, their immediate conversation as they're walking in the road is they're arguing over who of them is to be the greatest. Then in chapter 10, after he tells them that he's going to die and get the hands of the Gentiles, then the immediate response, the next very next paragraph, it says James and John, their mother and them, come and they ask Jesus, can we have the thrones at your right and left hand side, the thrones that you promised in, in a previous conversation that's recorded in Matthew 18 that happened just days before, that you said we're going to have thrones, can we have the two most important thrones? And then the others hear that, they get very upset, and they're, again, the disciples are all upset, and they're, they're all worried about their position, their status, their situation. In Matthew chapter 10, and this is the interesting focus, in Matthew 10, and we looked at this on Wednesday, that's why I'm glossing over, right after Jesus knows that they're arguing, Jesus challenges the disciples in verse 42. In Matthew 10, verse 42, watch what he does. You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles, they exercise the lordship over them. So he's talking about how the world lives and how people, they dominate and they dictate and they, they take advantage of their position over others to be served. And he goes, and, and the great ones exercise authority upon the servants, upon all the others. But so shall it not be among you, you who are my disciples, you are going to be on given thrones in time. The twelve thrones over Israel that Matthew records about. He says, so shall it not be among you. Whosoever will be great among you. Whosoever means any one of us. Whosoever will be great among you shall become your diakonos, your table waiter. And he says, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall become the doulos, the lowliest of servants of you all. And so he's challenging. He's just saying, okay, guys, here, you've got to have this mentality, the mentality of serving others, serving others, serving others. Then we read that phenomenal verse in Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, that is the idea of diakonos, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for man. What a wonderful soteriological verse. A verse about salvation, but that is not the purpose of the verse. The purpose in the setting of the verse is Jesus is saying, I am the chiefest, the best example of a ruler who has become a servant. One who has humbled himself where I am serving. I am giving my life. I'm giving the ultimate sacrifice for the benefit of all. And so he calls them to, an, to a, a point of sacrificial giving. He calls them to a position, to a lifestyle of serving others with himself as their example. What would Jesus do? How would we follow in his steps? Now I think there's more in this passage than just the idea of Jesus serving, giving an example as a servant. I think in this whole passage, Jesus is giving even more of an example. He doesn't state it. But he does, but it is there earlier in the text. Earlier in the text, before he makes that statement, we back up a few verses, and there's a phrase. It's back in verse 32. 
And it tells about the setting. They were going in the, they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. And so then we have the setting that Jesus is, he's leading the disciples. Now understand, they're headed from basically down by Jericho up to Jerusalem. That's why it would say they're going up. We're talking about an elevation of some 3,500 feet where Jesus is moving in just saying, I am going to do the will of God. I am, I am headed on this trip. It's a hard, difficult trip. But I am courageously convinced I am going to do the will of God. And so he's traveling on this road, and here he goes, headed up. Going up this rise, I mean, that 20 miles, that 3,500 feet elevation, raising and going up, and he's walking, and he's determined. But notice the phrase. Notice how Mark is giving a little bit of detail that is so important. They're going up to Jerusalem, and they're headed for a place where Jesus is going to, what has he just said? Twice already? I'm going to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to, I'm going to die. Look at the text. Look at the verse. Who's in the lead? Who's the one that's out in front of the little caravan? It says very clearly. It says they're going up and Jesus went before them. That Jesus is providing this example that here we go. This is what God wants me to do. I'm going to do what God wants. I'm going to the place where the Gentiles reside. The only city in Jerusalem that can give you a capital punishment. The only city that can declare an execution. The place where the chief priests reside. Where the scribes reside. That's the Sanhedrin. And they're going to turn against me. And I told you they're going to turn against me. And they're going to kill me. And I'm headed there. And I'm marching there like a soldier in the battle knowing that I'm going to give my life. That is not the norm. The norm for individuals would be what the disciples do. The disciples are lagging behind. The disciples are not real anxious to go there. Jesus is leading them, but they, it's, the passage even tells us, what is the disciples' response? What do you have? My, in my King James it reads, and they were amazed. And we think what amazed means is they were, wow! Actually, the word is the same word that shows up earlier in the text. It's the same word that we find in previous verses where it talks about how the disciples, that they were shocked. That they were, they, they, they were uh, chapter, chapter 10, verse 24, it's the same word. They were astonished. They were shocked by what he was doing. They aren't, they aren't ready to, to run out front. They, they themselves have some fear. They have some trepidation about what's happening. They know that he said he's going to do the will of God, but doing the will of God could put us all in trouble, which we'll see in a few moments. They understood that they were going to be in trouble as well. And so they're, they're, they're hesitant, but Jesus is courageously leading them, saying, I will go out. I am going to, I'm determined. I know this is what God wants me to do, and I know it's going to be difficult, but I'm determined to do exactly what the Father would have. Now, this fits exactly what was prophesied for about him. There's a section of scriptures in three different uh, chapters back in Isaiah that were often referred to at this time of the year in the Passover season. There is one section of these verses that describe the servant of God, that one who had come, the one who was going to be beaten. You know, all know the Isaiah 53 text where it talks about how he's going to you know, be silent and he's going to be like a lamb led to the slaughter. I want you to catch something else. It's in one of those same passages. Go to Isaiah for just a moment. Hold your finger here. And I want you to see how Isaiah predicted that the Messiah, when he would come, he would be determined to do the will of God. We read in Isaiah chapter 50. Jump down in that text with me, please. Isaiah chapter 50. 
that whole section of the suffering servant, here we read in Isaiah 50, talking about that Messiah, that one who would come. Look at verse 4. Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. So God enabled Jesus to come and heal the brokenhearted, to help the, those who were struggling. And that's why he was able to say, Come unto me, all who are heavy and burdened. He wakes in the morning by morning. He wakens mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. It's all descriptive of what was going to happen to Jesus Christ, how he was willing to suffer. And do what God had determined. Look at verse 7. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded, confused, or dismayed, or, or in any way step back. Therefore have I... What's your Bible read? I have set my face like a what? What's that mean? What's it mean to set your face like a flint? It was, a, it was an expression that basically I am determined to do what I need to do. I am headed this direction and no one is turning me away. He was courageously willing to do the will of God. He was determined to do the will of God. What an example for you and me. What an example for us to say, let's let Jesus give us an example and follow in his steps to determine to do the will of God. To courageously like he did, do whatever God would have, that, have us to do. Now, his, God's will for him is different than God's will for us in some of the outworking of it. Some of the will of God for us that is difficult includes what type of acts that we're supposed to carry out. What do you find difficult to do that God, you, that God would have you to do? It's the will of God. What's that? Witnessing. Anything else? Nothing, you don't have any difficulties? Prayer, is prayer difficult? Sacrifices, financially? Did any of you, did any of you, were you afraid to get baptized? When it was, why? Why would it be, what, what's scary about baptism? Hello? Being in front of people, looking like a, you know, a dunked dog, your hair, I, I was afraid the preacher would drop me and leave me at the bottom. Are, are there a number of things that scare us? That we hesitate? Could somebody hesitate in getting born again because they're fearful of what it might mean? But it's the will of God. It's the will of God that none would perish. Following in baptism, living a pure life. In First Thessalonians, it's very clear. This is the will of God for you, that you would maintain your vessel in holiness. Living a pure life is, is scary at times. Because to do that, you have to say no to people. You have to say no to some of the temptations. How about sharing the gospel? Yeah, that's scary. What about forgiving others? Somebody who's offended you. Is that scary sometimes to do the will of God to forgive somebody? Yeah, because they might... Yeah. They, they could take advantage of you. They might, they might not appreciate you. Being grateful... That is being joyful. You know, is that, is that hard to do the will of God to be constantly giving and rejoicing before the Lord? Listen, folk. Yeah, 
we, we know each other well enough. We don't always want to be joyful. That shows up at times when we come to church. <laughs> that we struggle with that. What, what about this being the will of God? Serving other people. What about this, the will of God? Being honest at times. Because if I'm honest, I might get in trouble. If I'm honest, they might not like what I'm saying. What about this? What about giving to the Lord's work? That's scary. That's challenging. What about this? What about visiting the widows? If it's not scary, if it's not challenging, if it's not hard to do, then why don't more Christians do it? Why aren't the rest homes flooded with individuals going to see people? What, what about this? What about being hospitable, having people into your home? Again, if it's not a challenge, if it's not difficult, then it should be no problem that people would be, your doors would be swinging all the time with people coming in. What about turning the other cheek when somebody says something offensive? What about the idea of obeying your parents? That is, is that difficult at times? And some of us parents would say, no, because whatever we say, it's always easy to do. That's not true. It's difficult to obey us. Is it difficult to train your children? Is it difficult to discipline a child biblically? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you, you, your heart at times says, oh, I don't want to do this because, you know, they're crying. And the Word of God warns us about that. Is it difficult at times to do the will of God when it says holding your tongue? Oh, yep, yep. Confronting somebody who has gone astray. You which are spiritual. Seek to recover one who has gone astray. That, that's hard. All these things that we list up here, they're all very, very difficult. It's difficult to go to somebody that you have offended and say, did I do something to offend you? Would you forgive me? Those are all some of the will of God for us in our lives today. And if we look at that, we say, okay, now wait a minute. Which one or ones might I be struggling with? And then you and I have to determine, will I courageously determine to do the will of God? Just like God wants me to do. Will I courageously determine to put off the grumpiness? Will I courageously determine to be honest at work? Will I courageously determine to try to reconcile a situation with somebody that I know that there's a problem? Will I courageously determine to share the gospel? Will I courageously determine to write a check to the Lord's work? Those are challenging. Those are difficult. And yet that is what the will of God is. Jesus gives us an example that says, you need to stop and say, will I courageously do the will of God like Jesus Christ did? And uh, you should say, I will do that no matter what. No matter what it is, no matter what he asks me to do. There's a gentleman that was in Philadelphia a number of years ago. And this is, again, back in the middle of the, uh, of the 1800s. And you see his name, Dudley Ting, was, was there and he was preaching. His father had a farm. They were very prosperous. But he got converted like the rest of his family. And he, in time, became a lay preacher. And so one, one week morning, he went, and they were holding revival meetings during one of those great awakening periods. He's in Philadelphia, and he's preaching to men. It was just a men's meeting where 5,000 men showed up. And they were in this, in this large outdoor arena type thing in the woods, and he was preaching the Word of God. Several hundred people responded to get saved. He went home, and he was so excited that week. And so the next day, he's working at his father's farm, and he, in the morning, he's studying, preparing for the next time he's going to be one of those who's going to preach at this upcoming session. And his father said he needed some help. So he went out into the barn area, and he's helping his father, and they're going to be, you know, dealing with uh, uh, some of the corn and some of the different, different harvests, and they were going to be shucking some of those things, and they had a machine that had a pulley device. And as he was helping his dad, 
All of a sudden, without thinking about it, and as he was moving the animals in place, his arm got caught in the device. And before they could free him, his arm was entangled and his arm was just emaciated. They called for the doctor. Tremendous amount of loss of blood. Ding is in the, Ting is in the, in his home. He's on his bed. And the doctor says, there's no, there's no alternative. We have to do an amputation. They amputate his arm. And this young man is struggling for the next couple days. Just trying to recover, trying to recover. And he had preached, and you see the passage that he had preached that just to those 5,000 men. Go to now, you that are men, and serve the Lord. And there he's laying on his bed, and his father comes to him and talks to him because the doctor's report is the fever is just really getting worse. He's probably not going to survive more than a few hours. And his father asks him, he says, is there any message? Is there anything, anything that you want me to tell that group when they meet? And then we share how you serve the Lord and how you love the Lord. And he said, I want you to tell them. I want you to tell them something. I want you to tell them to stand up for the Lord. No matter what happens, stand up. Stand up for Jesus. His funeral comes uh, within that week later. And one of his friends had written a poem. And the poem was written uh, based on his words that he had said to his father before he expired. The pastor friend who was preaching the ceremony, he read the poem. You, re- you see the poem in your hymn book on a regular basis. It's the, it's the words to that poem that were written were in, that, in tribute to Ting when he had that concept of standing up for the Lord. Standing up for the Lord no matter what happens. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. We need to have that attitude. That no matter what the will of the Lord is, that we would stand up. And let me add some thoughts with it. Even though it may call for great personal sacrifice, that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is leading the pack, if you would, and he's, dry, he's, he's headed down to Jerusalem, and they're amazed. They're, they're following, but it says they're afraid. They're shocked. They're afraid. He took again the twelve, and he says, Behold... We go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and the scribes. They shall condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They shall mock, scourge, spit upon him, kill him. And the third day he rise again. Jesus knew what this was going to be. And yet he was determined to do the will of God courageously. Even though there was great personal sacrifice, the rejection of his society, the rejection of those who are around him, being delivered into the hands of the Gentiles, the enemies of the people, great tortures that he would go through, where they'd spit, they'd scourge, they'd mock. He knew all this, but he courageously determined, I'm going to follow the will of God. Why would he do that? Why would he, why would he sacrifice himself? There's two reasons, two simple reasons. They both surround love. Love for us and love for, for God the Father. You find that throughout. You find that, I, that he's willing to give his life, life a ransom for many. To make the sacrifice. You find repeatedly, look up all these texts. You study them. You look them up this week. How each one Jesus is talking about and is summarized in the Hebrews. I delight to do thy will. For this reason I came, to do the will of the Father. Jesus said, I will do the will of God courageously no matter what the great personal sacrifice may be. Let me change your notes a little bit. Let me go to the number three and come back to the number two in your notes. You should courageously determine to do the will of God no matter what it is, even though it may mean you have to hold yourself back from responding in a way that you could respond. You could do something and you say, no, I won't. Let me illustrate what I mean here by the life of Christ. Jesus Christ is headed to Jerusalem. 
He knows they're going to abuse, they're going to attack him. He knows that this is going to be a time where, where he is going to be victimized. Jesus possesses great power and great authority. There is no doubt about it. We already told you that in every single time that he predicts this, he demonstrated his abilities. He demonstrated how he could heal the, heal the, the diseased people, cast out demons. He could feed the thousands. He demonstrated how he could be transfigured. He demonstrated how he had great abilities that he could speak like no man spake. They could, there's no way they could put him on trial and they could find him at fault if he were to defend himself verbally. And so Jesus, in all of this, he just shows his, his ability, his power, his, his greatness, his authority, before he says, I'm going to die. And so he knows this is the will of the Father, and even though he had the ability to do something to contradict it, to stop it, to avoid it, he didn't use that ability, he gave up his right. He gave up his, his human reaction to follow the will of the Lord. He threatened not. He reviled not. He allowed them to take his life. Let me, let me remind you that in this text, Jesus uses a title of himself that has profound significance. It, it kind of goes over our heads. But in this text, when Jesus is giving the prediction, he uses that passage that comes up, or that title that comes up in the Old Testament, the Son of Man. To you and I, it's like, oh yeah, it's like, to a Jewish person who understood their Old Testament, this was a significant title. This was the title that was used in the Old Testament to describe the greatest human being who would ever come on earth. A human being, a man, a son of man. The one who would come that Daniel talks about would be the one who would rule and lead the kingdom of God when it comes upon this earth. This is a title that is, in Mark's writings, used sparingly, but every time it's used in the Gospel of Mark, it is used in reference to the great ability of Jesus Christ. Let me just demonstrate, and you can write these down. In Mark we read that it has the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. In Mark we read, He is the one who controls the Sabbath. He's in charge of what they do on the Sabbath day. In Mark 8, this is the one described coming in glory from heaven. Further on in Mark, in chapter 13, and then again further on in, in later in the book, it talks about him coming in glory again, and he is the judge of all men. So in the Gospel of Mark, whenever you read this concept, Son of Man, think to yourself, the greatest human being that ever is, was, and to come. That's the title that he's using. And so when Jesus talks about the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem to give himself, he's talking about this one who holds all ability, all power, who has all majesty at his hands, who could have called the 10,000 angels, but he won't. He won't. He will stop and not respond and use his rights, if you would, to do the will of God. I, I started thinking about that. What does that mean? You and I may have the power to re seek revenge on somebody who's done us harm. We may have the power to, to do it verbally. We may have the power to do it in a sense of striking back in a physical way. But is that the will of God for us? You and I may have the ability to carry on an argument. To prove that we are right. But is that the will of God when it says live peaceably with... We, we may have the ability at work... Because we're the boss. You're in charge. You can lay down the law. But what is the will of God that's spoken about in Ephesians 6 about 
the way that you treat your employees. You and I may have the power to press an issue with a neighbor. We, we could be like that missionary that, that we, we know that in the country where he is serving, he bought some property and the neighbor's property put their fence right up against the church property line how, and went a foot over it. And they not only put their fence there, but they built their house right up to that fence. So part of the house of the neighbor who was lost, a foot or so of that house was the church's property. What would you do? You've got another half an acre of property, but the neighbor has their wall of their house built on your property. What should you do? Demand to have your property rights. So they made the neighbor tear down the house. That neighbor will never, ever have anything to do with those Christians in that church. And you know what the rest of that yard is? They don't even use the three feet that's next to it. It's just nothing. But it was, the, as the missionary said, it was the principle of the matter. That foot belonged to us. Yeah, yeah, legally you have the power to do that. But what, what is the will of God? What is the will of God when it comes to fighting a case in court between believers? 1 Corinthians 6, what is it? Don't sue. What is the will of God when it comes to destroying somebody's reputation? You know something about them. You have the details. You could spread things. But isn't the will of God love covers a multitude of sins? Yeah. What do we do? What do we say? You may have the power to divorce, but what is the will of God? First things first, work at reconciliation. It felt out possible. What is the will of God? You may have a right to complain. You may have a right to criticize. You may have that. You may be able to do that at work, and, and the other people in that school or in that lunchroom, they will, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Everything here is terrible. But what is the will of God for you in the workplace? Doing the will of God courageously. Is some of this difficult to do? Very much so. Very much so. But what we learn from Jesus Christ is that we should do the will of God no matter what, even though your friends may not understand why you're doing it. Even though your friends may not encourage it. Even though your friends may not appreciate you doing the will of God. You need to do it. You need to do what God says. In this text, did Jesus' friends understand him? Did they understand when he said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die? Okay? When, they, when Peter first heard about it, what was Peter's first response? Did he encourage Jesus? Absolutely not. What did he saw, say to him? We, we mentioned it earlier. You aren't going to go to Jerusalem. He, he debated with Jesus. And then we read in Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 9, when Jesus has given that and talked about what he, uh, the second time, we read in chapter 9, verse 32, they understood not that what he was saying about going to Jerusalem and dying, but they were afraid to ask him. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They, it was some, they were, in fact, they were becoming fearful of going to Jerusalem. Look at chapter 10, where it says that they were amazed, and as they followed, they were more and more fearful. Why are they getting afraid? Because they know what Jerusalem is like. If you compare the gospel accounts, John chapter 9, John chapter 11, they're very close in time. 
They're very close. And if we remember, we're going to get, by, by looking at John, we're going to get an idea of what is the feeling? What is the, what is the public opinion at this time? In, in Jerusalem, here's the public opinion. The Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that Jesus was the Christ, he's going to be put out of the synagogue. Do the disciples know there's danger for them and their families? Are they lagging behind? His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late have sought to, sought to stone you, and you're going to Jerusalem? It's a dangerous place for us. The Jews, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, that they should tell that they might take him. They understand the handwriting on the wall. They understand the public opinion. They know that Jerusalem is a dangerous place, not just because they, uh, Jesus said it, but because they're getting the feedback. They understand. They're afraid. They don't understand what he's doing. They don't understand what this means he's going to die. They don't, they, they, they don't get, they're apprehensive about going to Jerusalem because it's a dangerous place for them all. And so they don't encourage him. They debate with him. Peter does. But then the next group of guys, when, when, they, when they get together, the next two times he says it, nobody says to him, oh Jesus, this is really going to be difficult for you. They're going to reject you. They're going to, they're going to spit on you. They're going to scourge you. They're going to try taking your life. Is there anything I can do to encourage you, to pray for you? That is not what any of the friends say. Not a single one of the 12 does that. The 12 twice then. The 12, they say, well, Jesus, if you're going to go to Jerusalem and die, can we have the best seats in the house in your kingdom? Can, can we become the greatest in the kingdom? There is no sensitivity for Jesus and what he's going through. There is only an idea of what do they get out of it. How does this benefit me? And so they don't appreciate. They don't fully appreciate what Jesus is going to do. They're more wanting something out of it themselves. Amazing. Amazing. And yet Jesus with his 12, with his closest three friends, who aren't even on board with him, sets his face like a flint to do the will of God. Does that ever happen to you? That all of a sudden when you're going to do the will of God, you may have people who, they don't like you to do the will of God. They don't want you. Some of you have had that. You got baptized and professed your faith in Christ, and some of you had relatives that threatened you. Some of you, you give out tracts, and you have people that revile you. Some of you young people say, hey, I'm going to stand up for Christ, and I'm going to stand against some of the junk that others may want to do. And they, they ridicule you. They don't appreciate what you're doing. Some of you say, I'm going to sacrifice and give to the Lord's work. And you've got family members who say, you're nuts to give that money to the church. Yeah, some of you are facing some real difficult situations. You have friends, you have relatives, you have neighbors, you have fellow believers. That they want to gossip with you. They want to complain with you. And you say, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. Because that's not the will of God for my life or for years. And it's challenging because you know what's going to happen. Once you stand up against them, then you're going to become the part of their gossip. You're going to become the focal point of their complaint. And it's very difficult. But you and I need to say, now wait a minute. What is the will of God? Some of you have family. Family who even worship with you maybe. Who you say, let's go and visit the unlovely. Let's do for the needy. Let's, let's help out. And they go, what? But this is the will of God for us. This is the will of God to take time to serve others in that capacity. Some of you, you get advice from the Word of God 
And then you get advice from others who claim to be Christian, who are Christian, and they tell you to do the opposite of what the Bible tells you. And you have to courageously say, I'm going to do what God says. Courageously do the will of God. No matter what. No matter what the challenge is. You and I need to determine we will follow in his steps. Not only in responding to problems, but in courageously doing the will of God. No matter what it is, no matter what others do, God, I am your servant first and foremost. Is that your determination this evening?